Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning. My name is Jonathan Holmes. I'm the pastor of community here. If we haven't gotten the pleasure of meeting in this wild year, right? Uh, if you have your Bible with you, uh, I ask that you turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 35 this morning. And I trust that we'll see the Christian's view of God must be bigger than ourselves and our circumstances. The Christian's view of God must be bigger than ourselves and our circumstances. So let's, let's read our passage together this morning. Starting in verse 35, Mark 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would confront us with the truth of your word. Reveal in our hearts and minds ways in which our view of you is much too small. Our eyes turn to your son, Jesus, and ask that our affections would be stirred to him alone. Holy Spirit, please convict us of sin in our lives and grant to us the wisdom to take that next step of obedience with you. We pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. So our, our passage this morning comes at the very end of chapter 4, and so I want to familiarize ourselves with the text. And so if you look at chapter 4, in verse 1, we see this. Again, he began, Jesus, to teach beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the the land. So this very large crowd gathers around Jesus to hear the teaching from the man who's been traveling all around Capernaum and Galilee and doing miracles. The crowd is so large that Jesus has to take a step off, right? And he and he enters into a boat, they push out a bit and he begins he begins teaching them. And now, his teaching kind of builds up into our passage this morning. And so, he teaches parables, and all these parables have the revolving theme on how the Word of God has power. There is power in the Word. 
And so we don't have time to look at each one, although that would be fun, but a brief summary of each would be that the parable of the sower, the first one he teaches in 1 through 9, teaches us that the word has power when it is cast on good soil and it will spring up and bear fruit. Then we see the parable of the growing seed in verses 26 through 29 tells of a seed all by, growing all by itself while the farmer sleeps. Yet there is a harvest because there's power in the word. The parable of the mustard seed is the final one in verses 30 through 34, right before our passage. And it shows how the smallest seed grows into the largest plant because there is power inherent in the word. The point is this, Jesus has been teaching his disciples how the word has power. But now, he's going to demonstrate this power before their very eyes. So as a kid, I loved science class, right? Until it got over my head. But, but I did enjoy it for a long time because there would always be demonstrations, right? So I remember there was this time when we were learning about vortexes, which is ironic because I lived here in Missouri. So it's like, look out the window, there's a vortex, okay? It's like, oh, yeah, I got that. No, but we had been reading about it. We had done projects on it, but all of it was, you know, just in the textbook until my teacher brought two, two, two liters bottle with the, oh, two liter bottles taped together with some water and oil, and they mixed it up, and he showed how the vortex created pressure. I was like, this is fascinating, right? But then he took it a next step and said, here's a fire tornado. And I was like, oh my word, right? Like, I, I understand what a vortex is now, right? I have a picture for it. I felt the warmth of it. I know exactly what a vortex is now. And the count of Jesus calming the storm is a demonstration of what Jesus had been teaching his disciples. He was going to show them this power that was inherent in the word, right? And this is a first of the series of historical accounts that de demonstrate Jesus' divine power. So in Mark 4, we get this buildup to Jesus calming the storm, and then in Mark 5, we see the demonstrations of Jesus being the Son of God, him having divine power. So we see in our story this morning, Jesus has authority over nature, Mark 4. And then we see in Mark 4, 5, 1 through 20, he has authority over demons, no matter the number. The number does not matter, right? Bring all of them, he has authority over all of them. And then 25 through 43, he has authority over sickness. And then in 35 through 43, he even has authority over death. See, the point of chapters 4 and 5 are to reveal exactly who Jesus is. The scripture has been taught on many times on how Jesus can calm the storms in your life. And that is great. He definitely does that, right? There's a testimony in my life that Jesus has preserved me and sustained me in the storms of this world. But that is not the point of this passage. See, the point is not to focus in on the storm. Say, look at how bad it is. The point is to look at the one who's sovereign over the storm. The one who stared into the eye of the storm and made it cease. We are to look at the sovereign one this morning, the Son of God. And so in our passage, I want to outline what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to first see how Jesus really sets the scene 
for our lesson with the disciples. And then we see how the disciples respond to the storm, right? It's a natural response. And then we see how Jesus responds to the storm and then to his fearful disciples. And the final, the, our conclusion, or even our application, the fear of God in the face of his disciples, right? The fear of God in the faces of disciples. So first, let's look at the setting of the lesson. And if we look back on verse 35, it says, On that day, so right after these parables had been teaching, had been taught, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So here's our setting, right? This is going to be the ultimate demonstration of God's divine power, Jesus' divine power over nature. Now we need a little help visualizing exactly what this looks like. How did this storm arise? What did it look like? Because here in the Ozarks, when you hear the word boat, you go, I got that. Tracker, right? No, 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 right? But this is fascinating because in 1985, a boat was recovered on the Sea of Galilee. They call it Jesus' boat. It's, it, it, there's no correlation, right? But it gives us a picture of what first century fishing boats may have looked like. And they were very large. It's about 27 feet long and could hold anywhere from 8 to 15 people. So here you see that Jesus is on, is on this fishing boat, right? And that the, he either had all of his disciples or at least some of his disciples with him. And there were other boats with them as they, Jesus continued to gather a very large crowd around him at all times. But then we see two things happen that provide the perfect setting for this lesson to be learned, for Jesus to demonstrate what he had been teaching through parables. So the first is that a great windstorm arose on the Sea of Galilee. When you hear the word sea, you probably think of an ocean like I do, right? You sit on the sand and you look out. Okay, I'm making that too pretty, right? Like it's, it's rainy today. And so, but you, you do, you look out and all you see on the horizon is just water, right? That's not, that's not the case here, right? Sea of Galilee would be much more like a lake. And it's only about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide. It sits below sea level, and, and I'm told this. I've never been there, but I'm told that these kind of storms come rather suddenly and frequently on the Sea of Galilee because of where it is located. The cool mountain air streams in and mixes with the warm, shallow sea air to cause sudden and fierce storms on the sea, right? This is a very common occurrence for these storms to arise. So to no surprise to anyone in the boat, a storm stirs up, but this one is different. See, remember that many of the disciples were fishermen, right? And they were locals to this area, so they would have been aware of what these storms looked like. They were experienced fishermen, and some probably fished on this very body of water. But the Greek descriptor word here is megas. What does that sound like? Mega. That this is a mega storm, right? That's where we get our word mega from. Mega storm, and it's, uh, this is no regular windstorm on the sea. The NIV translates this as a furious squall. The NASB says a fierce 
gale of wind. However you want to translate it, this is a serious situation. See, the first thing we notice about our setting of the lesson is that there's a very real reason for the disciples to be afraid. If you look just at the circumstance, there is a reason for their fear to arise. And the second scene or setting that we receive is that Jesus lay sleeping on a cushion. Only once in the Gospels do we see uh, one of them write that Jesus is asleep. Now, we are sure Jesus slept and there were times when he rose up, but this is that Jesus was sleeping. The fact that Jesus could sleep through a furious storm shows his physical exhaustion that ministry had been taking, right? That I remember it says, when evening had come. This is a full day of teaching. I can't imagine this, right? I mean, we have this morning three services. I will go home and I'll be like, I'm ready for a nap. But I will be awoken by toys hitting me in the face, kids screaming and climbing and all those things. And it's wonderful, right? And I will not sleep through them, right? That'll just make me more excited about bed tonight. But to sleep through a furious, a mega storm, that's a different level of exhaustion. See, we come face to face with the full humanity of Jesus. See, Jesus was not kind of like man. Jesus is fully man. And this would be one of the first battles for the church. This is fascinating for me. I love church history, and the first battle that came to the front of doctrine was that Jesus was not fully man. He couldn't be. Now, why would they attack that first? Today, it's like, Jesus was not God, right? That's our struggle. Gee, no way could a man be God. Their struggle was, no way could a man do what Jesus did. We can't, right? So these false teachers would come in. So yeah, Jesus appeared like a man, but he wasn't fully man. He was enfleshed, but not a man. It was God disguising himself in humanity. No, 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 no. He was 100% man. The Bible repeatedly teaches our Lord's full and true humanity. He got hungry, Matthew 4, 2. He got angry, Mark 3, 5. He cried, John eleven thirty five. 35. He suffered. He died. And this morning we were reminded he slept in the midst of a storm. See, this is the perfect setting for the disciples' view of God to grow. For them to understand that their learning would come out in their living. Jesus knew that this time of testing would reveal if the disciples truly understood his teaching. And so then we see in the end of verse 38, the disciples' response to the storm. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now it's, it's fascinating because this story is, is, uh, is narrated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So all the synoptic gospels present this story. And here, listen to what Matthew says that the disciples say as they awake Jesus. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. In Luke's account, Master, Master, we are perishing. What does is, what is Mark, right, as probably Peter is retelling this story, what, what does he say? Do you not care? This is a rebuke. 
If you look at these side by side, Mark is the only one, only one who recorded the disciples' rebuke of Jesus. They woke Jesus and asked, you don't care. Do you not care about us? They expected him to do something. They wanted him to do something. Jesus, don't you care? Why is it that we immediately connect God's inactivity with his lack of concern or care about us? Why is it that when we perceive that he is inactive, that we say he must surely not care about us? When I personally pray and plead to God in times of trouble, my heart screams out to the Lord. I feel it deep in my bones. Do you not care? Are you not listening? Are you asleep? And David seemed to struggle with this too. See Psalm 10 in one of his prayers. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Then in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Jesus has proven himself faithful to me over and over. Yet when I'm caught by surprise, when a circumstance overwhelms, I find myself with a sinking feeling that he doesn't care and everything is falling apart. Is Jesus deserving of such an accusation of such hard-heartedness? We'd all say no, but in those moments we wonder, has he not proven his care though to us and his concern for us on the cross of Calvary? But yet, we are quick to accuse God when we feel our troubles are too much. See, the disciples' view of God was tested and was overwhelmed by this mighty storm. The storm was right in front of their face, and Jesus lay sleeping on a pillow. Does he not know? Is he not in control? The Christian's view of God must be bigger than ourselves and our circumstances. So now let's look at Jesus' reply to the storm and to his disciples. <clears throat> In verse 39, And he, Jesus, awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Peace, be still. Two sublime words of command here. And notice, Jesus did not call on a higher power. He did not conjure something up with the very voice that brought creation into existence. That same word has power over creation. Be still. He can only do this because he is creator. We're told not only does the wind cease, but the waves cease. See, things don't work like that, right? We know this, right? The wind might cease, it comes one, and then it stops. And you're like, oh, that's me. So, so maybe this could just be, uh, a, you know, just maybe 
hearsay, like it, it just happened. But no, the waves didn't gradually die down. We see our Greek word again, megas. The mega storm had just been silenced and is now resting in a mega calm. Just as sudden and stirring that the storm was, the calm is eerily quiet. There's no waves. It stops. This is not natural. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? He turns to his jaw-dropped disciples and responds to them. He doesn't say, wow, did you see that? That was insane. I've never seen one like that. That was, that was a big deal. No, he asks them a question. Actually, two questions. But the first, why are you so afraid? He doesn't ask, why are you afraid? It's important. He says, why are you so afraid? Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking? What are you, what? I'm standing in water right now, Jesus. Like, we were going to die, right? Why are we so afraid? We had reasons to be afraid. They felt like they had all the reasons to be afraid. But here in this mega storm that was threatening them, the terrifying power of the storm overwhelmed their view of who Jesus was. Well, it was until that moment that they thought the most powerful thing around them was the storm until Jesus awoke. Jesus rebukes the storm and calms waters with his caring eyes on his disciples. He asks, why are you so afraid? See, it's a natural response for them to be afraid. It would be terrifying to me to be standing next to someone with a tornado or a storm coming, and they're just like, this is great. Like, uh, I'm sorry, this should evoke in you a little bit of fear. That is natural, right? We would respond to danger with fear, but their fear but their fear, in their fear, there was unbelief. Their fear had taken control. See, it's important to note here that Jesus was not rebuking them or correcting them, maybe more gently, that they called out to him, but that they doubted he cared. See, in spite of all the evidence he had given them, that their main, the disciples' main failure was not to call out to Christ, but it was to question his care for them in verse 38. you not care? That's unbelief. That's when fear grips and controls and guides. And his second question, have you still no faith? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 should be important to us because we see in the Gospels faith is used in one way and then um, Paul, with Paul's writing and in the others, we see that faith is used in another. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us that faith is a gift from God. It's not something that we conjure up. It's not something, ooh, I have more faith today, right? Like it is given by God. He transforms our lives by granting us grace in, or granting us faith through grace, See, he, Jesus isn't asking, is your faith count still at zero? It's never about the quantity of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Jesus is saying, I have given you faith in me, right? I have granted you, I have graced you with faith. 
but you are not exercising it. The disciples had placed their faith in the storm's power to overwhelm. They had placed their trust in the storm when Jesus was next to them. Here's an important question for each of us this morning. What is the perspective of your faith? What is the perspective of your faith? Ultimately, faith must not just be built on the past. It must be future faith. For the Christian, their perspective is not, Jesus has taken care of me. The perspective a Christian has is, Jesus will always take care of me. No matter my circumstance, no matter where I find myself, Jesus will take care of me. Perspective is really everything. Have you ever taken one of those pictures where it looks like you're leaning on something huge, like the Statue of Liberty or Tower of Pisa, or maybe your, your, your friend is standing in your hand. Have you seen these? That's called forced perspective. It creates an optical illusion. It makes things, things seem bigger or smaller, that their perspective, it's, it's fascinating, and our eyes see it as someone standing on a hand. It's just the perspective in which you're viewing the picture. See, forced perspective is one way that our perspectives can be distorted from reality. But just like our photos can be distorted, our perspective in our lives can as well. See, faith literally means to put your weight upon something. The more weight you put on it, the more faith or trust you have in it. There are three things that shape our our faith perspective on any given situation, okay? And we're going to look at a distorted perspective and just contrast it and compare it with the Christian perspective, okay? So the first, <clears throat> we see three things, the view of God, circumstances, the view of self, and the view of God. And so the first, we're going to put up distorted perspective. So this is what happens when sin has its way, when fear has its way in any area of our life. See, a distorted perspective of your circumstances with that, there's no, there's no way any good could come from this. This is awful. It's terrible. I hate this. God is not here. He can't be. He would never let this happen to me. So God doesn't care or he's not all-powerful. That's a distorted view of your circumstance. A view of self would be, I'm in control of my destiny. You need your answers? Look inside your true self. A view of God would be, God doesn't care about me or the situation. Or God's not here. I doubt even that he exists. That would be a distorted perspective. But the Christian perspective is completely different. God, your view of God, affects every area. It affects your whole perspective. It has all your weight. The situation is really hard, but God's will will be done. I will be faithful, but ultimately, I am not the one who's in control. He is sovereign. In your view of God, God revealed his care and concern for me on the cross. I have no reason to doubt. I look at the cross and I say, oh, he cares. More than ever I can ask. He cares for me. How much weight does your view of God have in forming your perspective? Think about that. Does my view of God affect how I view myself? Does my view of God affect how I live my life, Christian? Our view of God must be greater than the sum total of our view of ourself and the view of our circumstances. But how can a Christian grow their view of God? If we realize, yeah, it's out of balance. I look to myself 
to get me out of trouble, right? I look to my circumstances and I'm overwhelmed. So how can a Christian grow their view of God? By coming face to face with the reality of who Jesus is, like to the disciples. The fear of God in the faces of the disciples. So our last verse, verse 41 And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, undoubtedly, they were going through times in the Old Testament where uh, the psalmist says, or, um, or it's said that, that only God can control nature. Only he can bring winds or cease winds, right? And so they're going, What? This is not just a good prophet. This is not just a miracle worker. He just talked to the storm. And here's our word megas again. Jesus mega calmed the, the mega storm and the disciples were filled with mega fear. Incredible fear. A pastor, a commentator said this, the disciples' reaction. In the disciples' minds, the only thing more frightening than being in a small boat in the middle of a big storm is being in a small boat with a man who shouts at big storms and gets his way. It's the only thing more frightening. See, the disciples went from one fear to another. A greater fear will always cast out a smaller one. The perspective shifted. Their view of God changed. Who is this man? This is the very Son of God. Is your view of God smaller than how you view your current circumstance? This story is a testimony that Jesus is, yes, fully man as he sleeps in the middle of a storm, yet fully God as, he, as the forces of nature obey his very word. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before thing, all things, and in him all things hold together. The disciples picked their jaws up off the floor and looked at one another and said, who then is this? And that's it. Who is Jesus? Who is he? That answer grows our view of who God is. This isn't just an ordinary man. He's not just a good prophet, a good teacher. He's not just an incredible prophet, a divine miracle worker. He is very and truly God. This is the very Son of God who shouts at a storm and gets his way. See, the disciples' view of God grew in this moment. No, they didn't fully grasp, and we're going to see that our view of God is ever-changing, right? But it should be ever-growing. Never should get smaller. Our view of God can never outgrow how big he is. The Christian's view of God is only, is only smaller than who he truly is. Grow your view of God by getting closer, coming face to face with the one who's sovereign over the storm. For my 30th birthday, Amber took me to New York City. I've never been there before. It was awesome, right? So I'm fly, flying in. If you've ever been there, you can see Central Park. You can see the city. And I've got to be honest, I was very underwhelmed, right? I had seen New York City, and I was like, I mean, that's a big city, but I thought it would be bigger, right? I mean, I was just like, oh man, that's kind of a letdown. And it was, you, you fly in so far away that I was like, I mean, those, those 
buildings are big, but I mean, Springfield has pretty big buildings. But then I got to the city. And the closer I got, the bigger the city was, right? It wasn't until I stood like just walking through the streets of New York City and I was like, this is insane, right? My feet felt it at the end of the day. My neck felt it by looking straight up. This is a big city, right? My perspective at that time, I was so distant from it. I couldn't understand the reality of how big the city truly was. If your heart and your mind is so far from the Lord, you're never going to truly understand how big he is, how incredible and powerful, merciful, and caring he is. If you stay at a distance, you can say, oh, God, doesn't matter. But the closer you get, the more you understand how big he is. It's not that God gets bigger. <laughs> it's that God is infinitely big. And the closer we get, the more understanding we get. Oh, how I doubted your care. And I can never do that again. How I doubted you're in control. I can never do that again. You are bigger than my circumstances. Are you shaken to your core at every trouble that comes your way? Doubting that God cares or that he's able to do anything? Then here's the application. Walk more closely with the Lord. Put a greater degree of importance, whatever it is, raise it to the next spot of being with the Lord. Move your heart closer to the Lord. Do you love him? Do you feel that you are a son or a daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Rest in that. His heart is open to you. He says, come to me. Find rest. The Christian's view of God must be bigger than ourselves and our circumstances. I'm going to end with uh, a hymn. Uh, I, I, I love hymns. There's a few that I love, and I've not been familiar with this one. This one had escaped me. So John Newton wrote a beautiful hymn entitled, Be Gone Unbelief, on this passage. And so if you want to close your Bible, if you want to close your eyes, however you want to hear these two verses, I'd just love for you to, to hear them and to think about how, what our response can be to the one who silences the storm. Be gone unbelief, my Savior is near. And for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. His love in time past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each time he has helped me lies clearly in view, confirms his good pleasure to help me through.